where I always start with young people is no one is asking them, and I shouldn't say no one, that's way too broad a term. They're seldomly asked, what gets your heart on fire? What gets your heart on fire? What are you dreaming about? Just we stopped culturally asking. So we'll say, you know, you've sure been on your phone a lot. You want to go to the gym? They're like, no. What gets your heart on fire? Now you've got the dopaminergic uh, ball rolling, so to speak. Because when you think right now, and I think right now about what gets our heart on fire, we get some dopamine from that. Oh, I, I know what gets me on fire. Okay, well, what are we going to do to get there? Oh, I got to do a couple things to get there. What's the first thing we can start to do? What if we start to move? What if we start to build brain and body foundation to get there in a focused, strategic, successful way that's related to what you're excited about? Versus you should. I feel like when we annihilate you should and we say you could, you open up the doors of human potential for kids. Welcome to the Empowered Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Katie St. Clair, and I'm so grateful you are joining me. On each episode, I'll be chatting with movement-related experts and guests who have a passion for looking deeper into how we can enhance our human experience with movement, breath, and better understanding of the brain and body. Let's dive right in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Empowered Performance Podcast. I'm here with David Bidler. He is the author of the book, Breathe to Perform, and the owner of the Distance Project and the nonprofit Physiology First in Freeport, Maine, which is dedicated to skills and physiology-based education for youth. He educates and consults with companies, schools, organizations, and individuals around the world on how to understand more about physiology, breath, stress, and so much more to enhance performance and improve lives. So welcome, David. I am so excited for my audience to get to learn from you today and hear about all the wonderful things that you're doing. Um, I wanted to start off by saying I heard you say something on another podcast that really stuck out to me and I wanted to ask you about it because I think it's a perfect way to start our podcast is you said, what would it be like to learn about us before we learn about every other thing in the world? That's the goal, Katie. And I'm so, I have to start off by saying thank you so much for having me on. You have been a movement mentor, a teacher, and someone that I, I can honestly say that I've learned more about my body through you and your work than anyone that I've worked with. Oh, thank so it's you. It's a real deep honor to be here. Well, and I'm honored yeah. to talk to you. So thank you for taking the time to be with me. Well, you know, about that quote, I think if we take a look at where we are positioned right now in 2023, and we look at the rates of depression, of anxiety, of struggle in adults and kids, and then we ask the question, have these adults or these kids been given the fundamental skills, the fundamental tools to navigate our, our ancient physiology in a very modern world. And the more that we ask that question and the more that we go into our communities and we share simple principles around breathing, sleep, nutrition, these aren't high level principles. These are the fundamentals. You realize people are 40 years old and just learning about their foot. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're 50 years old and just learning which part of their face would be optimal to breathe through. That's not um, an opportunity to critique necessarily, unless we don't evolve education and put learning about our brain and body first. 
And if we do that, I think we're going to find our way through a very, very dark moment in a very bright future. Yeah, I completely agree. Can you talk a little bit more about the language you use to describe the way we talk in the 20th century versus your ideas on understanding things from a physiological perspective and using that language in the 21st century and kind of give people an idea of what that actually means? Because I think a lot of people are like, well, what is the 20th century language? What is the 21st century language? Are we trying to get to point A and point B? Well, you know, we call the organization Physiology First for a few reasons. And one is to create a revolution in education. And I don't mean that in a hyperbolic way. I mean an actual revolution where those of us who are leaders and learners can take what we're learning into communities. Decentralization to me, Katie, looks like we can teach kids wherever they are. We can meet them wherever they are. We built a physical campus, the first of its kind, and it's built to scale. So kids can come here at the end of the day. We just had a great group leave. uh, They came in seven this morning. We're working on breathing. We're working on strength and conditioning. We're working on body biomechanics. We're working on confidence. We're working on skills. But that could have happened in a park. That could have happened in somebody's gym or their practice. So we want to create a new wave of educators and of education that isn't reliant on institutions that have opted out of investing in the health of kids. And they have fundamentally opted out. And that's not every institution. Every now and then I meet rebels in the school system. But I haven't met one that told me this is working optimally. That sitting kids under fluorescent lights for six hours taking away their recess and their opportunity to see the sun and to move, and then teaching them a curriculum from uh, you know, 1923 when it's 2023 is not a great idea if we wanna prepare people for the dynamism of the 21st century. What were the careers in the early 1900s? What were the careers that even you and I thought would be a stable future? Well, that has flipped fundamentally. So a school system that has trained people to do a very good job of sitting still and following orders, is now in a world where I don't know one person hiring who's looking for people who can sit still and follow orders. You can use ChatGPT4 for that. You can use an AI assistant. They're looking for uh, thinkers, innovators, courageous people who are ready to take risks and do new things. And so I think that if we look at how the economic landscape has changed from the 20th century to the 21st and how fast that change is occurring right now, we're at an age of exponential technological growth. So think of, I don't know, what's a good um, analogy that maybe you and I both sort of relate to in terms of early technology. I remember having a pager. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, Katie. It would beep and people could learn to write messages with numbers, right? You could flip a number and make it like the letter U. But now we have, you know, we have $1,400 supercomputers in our hand that track everything that we say that we like and then magnifies that to the point that we're living in an echo chain. Now, you and, I, you and I may have somewhat similar echo chambers. I wouldn't be surprised if you and I switched phones and we're not blown away um, by the fact that they're not drastically different. But when I teach young people to think about the role of technology on mental health, and this goes back to why the 20th century is different from the 21st, is I ask them, what do you think would happen if you all just switched phones for a day? Well, first they get very nervous because it's our private it's our data, it's where we put our, our lives. But the fundamental question is you'd go to TikTok and you'd go to Snapchat and you'd go to Instagram and you would expect it to look like your little world. You and I might expect it to look like, I don't know, PRI-based breathing exercises and uh, videos on foot pronation and supination. 
but that could very easily be an entire screen filled with particular ideologies, different strains of nationalism, different strains of hate, different strains of pers persuasion. In a very recent case, and I bring this up because it's a dark origin point for our conversation, but I think it, it adds weight and we can talk about how to shine light on this. One of the first, the first death attributed where social media was attributed to the cause of death was a 14 year old girl who was caught in such an algorithmic nightmare, the darkest content you could imagine. And the psychologist that was um, part of examining this case, Katie, he said, I couldn't sleep for a week. When I looked at what her TikTok, her Instagram, and her Snapchat reels looked like. So for the first time, we think 20th century, if you and I live in a similar community, a similar neighborhood, we're gonna have different dynamics at home, but we're in somewhat of a shared landscape. And if that landscape is generally calm and generally not filled with violence and, and tumult, but we were constantly anxious, maybe you can look at the person and you'd say, well, maybe it's you, right? Maybe you're, you're dealing with an anxiety disorder. But you don't even, we don't even know the landscape that these young people are in right now. You don't know what, how they slept. You don't know if they're eating well. You don't know how they're breathing. You don't know if they're moving. And you don't know how these little supercomputers, these windows into society are fundamentally different for each of these kids. So how in the world can we even ask the question, what is mental health in 2023? How should someone feel if they're being pulled in a certain direction that makes the world seem dark, nihilistic, and cynical, like it has no hope for the future? Well, they should feel depressed and anxious and cynical, nihilistic. How should we feel when we haven't met our basic hydration needs, our basic nutrition needs? We haven't moved our bodies in weeks. We probably should feel like the alarm signals of our physiology, these survival prompts are saying, I'm not punishing you, I'm prompting you to move. I'm prompting you to drink, I'm prompting you to eat, I'm prompting you into your power. Now, when we pathologize that prompt, because that's what we're doing right now, mm -hmm. we're telling a young person, okay, well, if you've taken in 60 ounces of caffeine and three monster energy drinks, and you feel jittery and you feel anxious, you're disordered, you have a disorder. Right. No, you don't, that's called physiology. So <laughs> to the audience here, I've got a big 20 ounce cup, if I fill it with espresso and I decide throughout this entire conversation to guzzle it, you can make some guesses, educated guesses on how I would physiologically shift. Maybe I'd sweat more and I'm sweating now because it's a gazillion degrees in here, but maybe I'd sweat more. I'd talk faster. You'd see changes in my breathing. Right. It's called being a human being. And so I feel like right now we look at the origins of the language that we're using. We're calling this, for one, a mental health crisis. And the origin of the term mental health comes from 1908. We didn't have wearable technology to track sleep. We didn't have technologies to track exercise. We didn't have the latest neuroscience to ask the fundamental question, which is what are the physical prerequisites for this thing we're calling mental health? So you have a 20th century word in a 20th century, 21st century landscape. And I don't know who gets to be the judge of the health of the human mind. I've not met that person yet, you know? So anyone who's decided um, I'm, going to, I'm going to appraise the health of the mind, that's a tall order. We might want to look at baseline physiology first. Right. Because it may not be a clear analysis, especially 
not taking into consideration the variables I mentioned. This kid's coming off a phone. You don't even know what's happening in there. You don't know what world they're seeing, what potentials they're seeing, what possibilities they're seeing, how much darkness or how much light. So to assess their, their state psychologically without looking at basic physiological biometrics, I think we'll be we have, we're diagnosing one in four kids in our neighborhood with a disorder, one in four, a quarter. I can only see one or two futures. Either half of them are diagnosed with the disorder or we actually start to assess physiological baselines for brain health and body health. And we get people from a state of dysregulation to resonance. And then we have a deeper conversation on the complexity of technology, psychology, sociology. But because we're leaving physiology out of the equation, I think we run the risk of diagnosing a generation of kids as disordered for simply being human in a very, very unique and often unhealthy environment. I so agree with this and it resonates with me so strongly because I was that child who was medicated, you know, at 16. And so I look back and I think about, yes, it was helpful then. And maybe I needed the medication at that moment, but I sure wish I knew some tools and things to recognize what was being driven physiological from the chronic state of stress that I was in and what was actually a mental or genetic, you know, I'm air quoting if, if you're just listening to this um, problem versus was there anybody asking these questions about, you know, are you sleeping well? Are you getting exercise? Are you, you know, struggling with your relationships? Like all of these things play a huge role. I think, you know, now that we, we do know more about that, how do we, how do you create like an entry point to just create awareness around the dysregulation without stigmatizing or making someone feel on edge? Cause like you said, if we traded phones, the kids are going to be like, oh God, no, don't put you looking at what's on my phone, you know? So then there's like a stress response from that because somebody's now, um, cause I know some of the tools, like you use amazing tools to test this physiology. How do you do that with kids in a way that makes them feel like no matter what the numbers are, it's okay. Oh, absolutely. Such a great question. And I think one of the things that I think we could all, um, explore together is that there's an idea that kids need to be comfortable in this environment, but that's not the case. They need to be comfortable in discomfort. And this environment is a training arena that they're coming into knowing it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a supported set of challenges. So I think that the expectation that the sauna at 200 degrees or 990 degrees is going to be comfortable, or that lifting a heavy weight for the first time, practicing breathing exercises on an air bike, if they expect it to be comfortable and it isn't, it's a breach of trust almost of sorts. But if I say, we're going to explore together and it's going to be fun and it's going to be, it's, we're going to feel things. Some of those things are going to be hard. You know, we're going to all meet some challenges together. One of the things I love to ask students, because it sets up the framework, is I'll ask them, who here thinks that anxiety is a big problem? And say nationally or personally, or depending on how close you are to the students. Every hand goes up every single time. They're uh, not afraid to say, I think anxiety is a big problem. Okay, who here thinks stress is a big issue? All hands go up. And I'm like, okay, who can define anxiety or stress. And there's almost this pin drop moment in every room because they go, well, I have no idea what these words mean. These are actually large cultural abstractions. 
to describe a complex number of factors. And I think they're a big problem, but I can't possibly even come close to defining what that is. And then I'll ask them, well, how are we gonna build a training plan around an abstract generalization that we can't define? You can look at the human nervous system and understand what sympathetic drive is, sympathetic tone is, what the anxiety is physiologically. And as I always share back with the audience, physiology is not psychology. I could fill this up with um, espresso. I could fill it up with whiskey. I bet we'd have a different conversation <laughs> by the time at the 40 minute mark. That's simply physiology. So when you demystify states that have been stigmatized culturally, and you begin to define it. Okay, well, I always ask the students, what if, um, who wants to have some anxiety? Like who wants to explore some? Because if you're gonna wait for it to just happen to you, you're not gonna walk into that arena volitionally ever. Then it's always out there like this looming monster. Like what if we just take the teeth out of that monster? And the kids are like, okay, let's take the teeth out of it. Let's, let's have some anxiety. Let's, let's pump some, some Wu-Tang Clan or Drake or something. I always, and I'd recommend this to anybody watching, I always say to the students, you're the DJ. That's your DJ booth and here's the iPad. So now not only have they been given agency and leadership and control, but they're setting a vibe that is a cool vibe. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing cooler, Katie, in my eyes than watching young people set up with an atmosphere that they identify as as cool. So their tunes, it's their, you know, it's their crew because they bring friends. And then having them jump on an air bike, an airdyne, um, you know, airdyne bike. Um, what if we just start to bike with different patterns of breathing? We slow down our breathing on the bike. And what if we start to add some breath holes to the bike? And now you see their eyes get big. You can see their face flushes. You can see the changes in physiology. We're going to add a long breath hold. Pause. What does that feel like? Oh, man, I feel, that feels like anxiety. It's like, well, yeah, you can go in and train that up. You don't have to wait for that to happen to you. We create environments where we learn about the stuff. What if we do a long exhale and hold? Now everybody's laughing. They're experiencing the physiology of the anxiety with their favorite songs on, with all their friends around, laughing and in control. And that's how we work to create a paradigm that doesn't stigmatize physiology. And then I always ask them, where else, where else could that, I always ask them, where else could that skill be helpful? So we just did this idea of entering anxiety now what I might do, Katie, is I might put a pulse oximeter on their finger so they can watch their blood oxygen saturation and their heart rate. And then I might say to them, hey, your heart rate's at 165. Why don't we take it down? Show them a few breathing exercises. We go from 165 to 145 to 130 to 115. We're like, whoa. The point then is, well, where else is that useful? Oh, I have a big speaking event tomorrow. I'm nervous about it. I have to get up in front of the whole class. Oh, cool. Do you think that that would work there? Definitely. Boom. It's like, that's how we can tie training for the sport of life instead of training for the sport of sport and then walking out into the larger game of life with none of these skills intact. I love that. I think there's so much to be said for entering those areas of uncomfortable space inside your body, but being able to just identify what it is and have, you're giving them language that's very positively based, you know, exposure over and over again. So then they can, you know, tune in and go, oh, okay. I felt this before. It's not this big monster. It's, it's because it, otherwise your brain starts over analyzing why you're having the feeling. 
Like, why am I having this feeling? What's wrong with me? I must, there must be something wrong with me. I probably need a medication or like, and you start going and going and going. And then you can't close the lid because the lid's just flipping like crazy. So I think that's such a powerful way to get kids. And God, if you could teach that young, the impact it's going to have. We had a 10 year old in this morning. So we had a 10 year old in here who's doing jujitsu. She's in here with her sister at seven in the morning. And also with mentors, students who are a little bit older. And the coolest part of that, to your point, is, you know, anyone here, I know that your audience, you have a lot of people who are coaches, physical therapists, movement practitioners. I bet you that a lot of people can relate to how people wear the coat of identity or even shame when somebody says, you know, you have bad knees. They heard it at some weird, like, intersection in their life where it really stuck with them. And they go, I have bad knees. I have a bad back. I am slow. I am not fast. I am not strong. People wear this identity. So we can also take teeth out of an industry that puts that identity on millions of kids. You have anxiety. You have depression. I tell people, you can't have this stuff. Meaning I can't, I can have hunger because I'm hungry. And I can eat and maybe it goes away, but I don't personify hunger. You can be sleepy, but you aren't exhaustion. You can't have anxiety. You can move through anxiety. You can move through states. You're, a, you're at the wheel of your physiology if you are. So how do we get you there? Now the framework is, is life skills training. And then the physiological cascade of actually getting young people moving and in the ice bath and in the sun and lifting weights, that's its own train. But to your point, I've never seen that skill alone produce the level of purpose, fulfillment, connection, that it produces when it's contextualized mm -hmm. versus focused. This is you training for the sport of life to reach your goals. And one exercise I'll share with the audience, I always ask students, if we have a bigger group, I'll say, why don't we take a minute, just chill out for a minute. And why don't we really think about the version of our future that gets us most pumped, excited, like, like that draws this passion in us and says, I wanna go there. And I tell them, I said, I'm not gonna ask you what it is. This isn't a test. Like, let's all dream a little bit for a minute. You know, really think about it. Where do I want to go? What would make me feel connected, whole, purposeful? When we sit up, I ask, I tell them, I'm like, you know, the only reason that these tools matter, the only reason that this work that I'm looking to share matters is to help you get there. Because I work with a lot of people in high performance. And the ones that I know who got to that version, or at least some manifestation of it, because it changes, right? But they got there, they had one skill that was in common. It's that they can control their internal state in chaotic, unpredictable, dynamic environments. So if you think getting to that goal is going to be easy, I don't, do you think it's going to be easy? And they say, no. What do you think you're going to meet? Obstacles, barriers, barricades, challenges, the unexpected, the sky is going to fall multiple times. It's like, okay, well, this skill set is for that. All of a sudden, you've asked them what matters to you, and then you've added this into the, the matrix of what matters. If yeah. you end up being a better player or something, well, that's also really awesome, but it isn't right. the first. That, yeah, so before we got on and we were talking about this, I think that's like what's so impactful about what you're doing is you're making it about more than training. This is not just training to train your body for necessarily your sport, but it's, you can use that. That's part of it. That's a wonderful, positive thing that you can have in your life, 
but because when the sport's done, you still need mm-hmm. to figure out how to manage your physiology and continue to move forward with your fitness. And you need to figure out how to create your own unique community and all of that when you don't have that community anymore. And I, and I can see how there's that big transition that you probably have to deal with a lot because you're dealing with a lot of teenagers and that's that transition point. Not everybody's going to make it to play in college and the majority aren't. So then all of a sudden, if you were lucky enough to be involved in athletics, you know, we can't even talk about the kids that didn't even get to do that or have a community in that, in that particular way. But now how do you transition on? So what you're doing is really teaching them how to do that so that they can set themselves up for when they're done. I have a question for you. That's like, because yes. I'm really curious about this with your business. So I know that you do a lot of the metabolic and physiological testing, mm-hmm. so like the breath work, yep. all that kind of stuff with everyone. On top of that, I know like using concepts in empowered performance or, you know, other sort of exp- expansion compression type concepts. So you teach people how to understand what their body needs from a biomechanical lens and then you're trying to te- educate them on the physiological lens. I know because a lot of coaches are listening to this. A lot of people in my community that have fitness centers themselves, coach groups, and are wondering how in the world do you possibly get all that in with everybody? Like, how does that, what does that look like? You know, that's a lot. Well, I'll, well, I'll tell you, and I feel like, because it's only the foundation of our curriculum and we're actually working to teach 21st century skills beyond that, that it allows us to uh, maybe demystify how hard that initial challenge is. Because those of us who are really interested in movement, we know that you can go down rabbit holes and they're beautiful and they're really cool. You can go down the breathing rabbit hole and never come out, right? Physiology is amazing. But when you're conveying the 80-20 principles to kids, it reminds you what matters. And conveying that 80-20 with a good story and trust and communication, that part's actually not so hard. It's building an integrated program that then prepares them to take these skills out into life. So I'll share an example of how the two might help. Okay. I had 12 students come in the other day. And any coaches who are listening to this, please take this idea if it works for you. Uh, 12 students coming in from the University of New England. We have schools come to our campus. It was so important for us, Katie, to build a campus. I have, I have gone to schools, even in the height of the madness in 2020. I've sat in front of superintendents. I've said, look, we can put this whole program in the hands of every community member and every student without a dollar. Wow. We don't need anything. And they've said, we'll get back to you. It is de-incentivized, deprioritized, fundamentally unimportant. So I said, you know, I would, I would say to your audience, we all kind of maybe have the idea that, you know, you can spend a lot of energy critiquing, but then you don't have energy for creating. We are going to build an alternative educational infrastructure. And when you do that, people opt out of any place where their mental health and physical health was not a priority. They begin to come to that place. So having a campus here, it's a first of a kind, it's a prototype, a scalable prototype. People understand that it has some fitness equipment, it also has a library, it also has a cafe, it also has a bunch of bean bags. And because we do that, it says to them, you know, you can hang out here anytime you want without lifting that barbell repeatedly. 
like you can actually sit in a yoga bovine bag and read uh, a great book or hang out with your friends and come up with some cool ideas and how we grow the nonprofit. And that pulls them into the bigger picture concepts of we're going to learn about our physiology, but how do we apply that to a goal matrix? Well, they're helping to build this whole organization. It runs so much on their visions and their, their, their input because we really give them opportunity to say, run with your ideas and lead. So to circle back to these 12 students coming in, they all came in for the first time and say, kick the shoes off. They kicked the shoes off. I said, I gotta tell y'all something before we start. They said, what? I said, this place is haunted. Unfortunately, we had us a haunting. So I have a big digital board, a big digital presentation board. And it is every night there's been crazy patterns coming uh, on the board where I would write the workouts for the presentation. Now, the logical-minded folks in the audience might think of it as a technical glitch of some sort, but it certainly looks like a haunting. So I, I said to them, everybody, come here, check this out. I show them what the haunting's about. They're like, you should have an exorcism. I'm like, we should have an exorcism. Now, we've only been hanging out for five minutes, but we're building trust. We're building reciprocity, we're laughing, we're solving a problem that's interesting and kooky and fun. And that's a lot different than saying, all right, everybody sit down, we're going to talk about cilia, the power of nose hair. Like, it's like, let's have some fun, a community problem here. What's going on with this board? The logic-minded people felt it was hacked. Some people felt that it was, in fact, a specter. But before we even talked about physiology, we built a connection. Mm. Now there's a connection, it's a foundation for something. Then I said, okay, look, I want to, and we, I gave my background. I left school at a very early age. I was on the streets of New Jersey. And I said, if I don't learn something, I'm going to end up on a street corner or a jail cell or a cemetery. So what could I learn without a formal guided educational path? Well, what if I learned about me, my brain and my body first? Would that give me a set of skills where I could navigate my way out of that situation and out of New Jersey and into a life of purpose and passion, meaning and some level of self-defined success. Because for me, doing this work with kids, that's what I set out to do. And it worked very well. I learned a lot about psychology and neuroscience and philosophy. I took that path, but I share that with them because now you're breaking down the hierarchy. You're not the sage on the stage. You're saying, man, I've been through some stuff too, and I'm really grateful for these mentors who came in with the skill set. So my goal was to be part of that lineage just by sharing stuff that's worked. And I ask them who they are and why they're here. And I really would try to listen. God, the last set of answers from these students were, I'm here for a new perspective on fitness. I thought that was such a big win. That's awesome. And then also, it was so cool. And I was like, okay, so let, let me ask you a question. I was like, let's, I, we go into the anxiety and the stress conversation. Who can define anxiety? What are the bigger problems that we might want to overcome through skills-based training? And when we start to put anxiety in the box of physiology, because it is. And I don't think that that conversation is happening nationally. I always like to remind, you know, I like to write about the idea that psychology equals I think and physiology equals I feel. And I don't hear people saying, I think I'm anxious. Right. You're feeling. <laughs> You're describing physiology in action. So if we're going to talk about feeling and the body and the nervous system and the brain, I always ask the students, I say, can you all give me a thumbs up? Give me a thumbs up. Like, can you all flash me a peace sign? They flash me a peace sign. 
I say, can you all wiggle your ears? And now the whole room is divided. 20% of people are wiggling their ears like mad, 80 are watching them. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So all of us have the ability to do this. We can send the signals from our brain to through our nervous system to motor neurons. We can signal this, we can signal that. But only a few of us can turn these dials. What if you, can, who here can lower their heart rate? Maybe some can, but they will in about 20 minutes. And I'm like, the future is learning how to turn the dials of our physiology. And if we can learn how to do these simple things, if we can learn how our feet work and our hands work, then maybe we have a trajectory towards higher level concepts of how my brain work. What is dopamine? What is serotonin? What, is, what are the neurotransmitters that drive me forward in the world? And what I like to do from there is I, I put the palms on the ground. I just want them to learn how to distribute weight through each knuckle and then through all the knuckles. And then I remind them to tie it back to something that could be related to fitness. Okay, now I understand how to use my hands. Well, why is that good? I might do a push-up, I might do a bench press, I might throw something. Learning how to control my fingers. Now we're gonna stand up and do the same thing with our toes. Can you press through just the binky knuckle, the next knuckle, the next knuckle, the next knuckle? Can we go just big toes up, big toes down? And they're feeling it. You can see them feeling it out and it's like, okay, if I can't control my feet, good luck with the anxiety. Like that's a much higher level concept here. But if we can learn how our fingers and toes work, now we have a shot at moving up the chain of interoceptive awareness, physiological interception, and saying, okay, I can actually control my physiology, but I have to start with what's easy and foundational before I move and evolve into what's complex, difficult, and dynamic. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that even for the coaches listening or movement professionals that are working with adults, I think this is such a good reminder of the disconnect because children in some way, I, I would wonder if it's almost easier to get them to build that somatic awareness because they're not so far removed from their bodies. Like you, you, you grow older, you get, you know, you hurt your back, you have emotional uh, trauma, you have physical traumas, you have, you know, this chronic stress load of work and da, da, da. And I just think as adults, it's so easy to disconnect and create that somatic relationship. Um, do you find that, that it's almost, I would think for you, it's like fun to, to see that reaction. Oh, it's, it's like fat. Oh, fun. To, any, to any of the coaches listening to this, if you want to disrupt education, and if you want to disrupt the biologization of kids, that's not dark subject matter. It's a lot of fun. Creating a new future should be a lot of fun. There's nothing dark about that. But I feel you need to decisively and in a focused, strategic, organizational way, disrupt systems that rob kids of their power to know themselves. Mm -hmm. If we normalize sitting for six hours a day, we wonder why we have a populace sitting for six hours a day. It's because we've normalized sitting for six hours a day. We have to disrupt the paradigm, right? But it should be with a light heart. Because, my gosh, if you're going to try to build a brighter future, you can't do that with dark energy. So it really has to be the most fun thing in the world. And when you do that, to your, to your question, oh, yeah, kids are receptive. And they're receptive to the most technical of concepts. Uh, let me just give an example of this. I had a 16-year-old, um, uh, uh, she's 17 now. She was in here the other day. I said, I just want you to stand on one leg and drive your other knee up. What do you feel? Oh, I feel pronation in my right foot, the ribcage shift. I feel the, I feel my, you know, whether she used the term, you know, 
she's not using the term viscera, right? But she's saying, I feel everything inside of me move to one side. I can feel my big, my, my toes on the ground equally. I can feel how I'm rotated. And now I need to get on my other leg and I feel the opposite set of sort of spirals. It's a fairly high level of interception, but it's not uncommon. They're so receptive to feel. And there's a study I have to share with the audience because it's so rad. And if you look it up, you'll be, I think it's delightful. Study uh, just came out. Kids' distraction helps them outperform and distraction in quotations. Wait, say Kids that again for a second. Say uh, again. The study or the headline is kids' distraction in quotations helps them outperform adults on data processing and data acquisition. Why? Because adults have become fundamentally more myopic. And kids are taking in all of the surroundings. So in this study, they're saying, okay, I want you to focus on one thing and not focus on the other things. Adults are good at that. We can focus on consumerism, we can focus on making money, I have to focus on the mortgage. Kids are taking it all in through the periphery. So I like to imagine for the coaches here, imagine an adult juggling two balls. That kid is juggling 14 balls. They haven't learned how to forget about everything else that matters. They haven't gotten myopic yet. So there's a lot more in their neural stream, so to speak. They're taking in a lot more. Maybe they can't focus on the static quite as bit because the world is still dynamic and movement isn't static. It's massively dynamic. Mm -hmm. So they can feel their ribs expand at joints. They can feel pressure internally. They can feel CO2 levels rise. They can, they can interact with their physiology at a level of, of death that takes far longer, far longer for adults who've maybe just spent longer being disconnected from it. Wow, that's it's almost immediately very cool. Yeah, that's so neat to think of that um, from that perspective and um, just how resilient that makes them. And it also is like very hopeful because I think about my own son and oh. yeah. Oh. It's so hopeful. I think about, wow, just some little things that I could do um, or just start to talk about with him that would help him understand that they, these things are just feelings inside of you and, you know, um, nothing to be afraid of necessarily. Just understanding where they're coming from alone is helpful. And, and just how quick they can absorb that because they're not so focused on this one thing. Yeah. Yes, yes. Amazing. It's, it's, it is um, an analogy I like to use. It's outside of our campus here. I have a asphalt parking lot and I have a nice lush green lawn. And the one is simply more fertile soil. Now I have 84 year olds here who work out and train and lift and breathe here. And they are still fertile soil. I don't mean to decide or to describe adults as blacktop parking lots, but they've kept up their passions, their pursuits, their interests. They're 84, they're talking about what they wanna do at 94. They're all on different boards and community projects. They're training here all the time. They're still fertile soil. But if we understand just the basic neurology of like, if we understand that we can lose up to 10% of dopamine neurons per decade, that's really, really um, important. Right now in the US, Alzheimer's rates are set to triple by 2030. Adults can use, lose 10% of dopaminergic neurons per decade. We start to understand that the foundation for motivation 
is a foundation. We're going to want to learn how to farm. We're going to want to learn how to be, um, how to keep that, that soil fertile. So with young people, it's about as fertile as it can be. If we use the analogy of sponge, if I let a sponge dry up in the sun all day long, it's not going to be able to soak up as much water. No character flaw or judgment, it's a sponge, right? And it's dried up. I stick it in a puddle, it can't absorb as much. These kids are sponges for cueing, for coaching, for skill building, for, and they just soak it in at a level of depth and a level of um, engagement that is hard to parallel in the adult community. So I think for the audience to think these kids will be the new adults. This will be the future. And if we can teach them about their physiology first now, we're building that kind of fertile soil for lifelong learning. Yeah, I love that. And building it for a community experience that's going to be different because the children are the face of the future of all communities, basically. So can I ask you a question? Um, well, two things I think my audience would be interested to, to hear a bit more about is the the chemistry of dopamine, like a a little bit more into the science of that and what that looks like um, for an adult, how they can improve um, their own physiology by understanding a little bit more about maybe something they can do to improve that, their chemistry. Um, And then how that adult, assuming they're a parent or, you know, have a child in their life that they really care about, how they can pass that on to a child in a way that makes sense for them. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) Good question. So I would recommend the book Dopamine Nation by Anne Lemke to anybody. Um, It really explores the neurochemistry of dopamine. And dopamine is is not only a neurotransmitter, but a neuromodulator. That means it has control over multiple brain functions. Dopamine is what gets me excited to talk with you all today. It's also what gets me from a motor neuron perspective to be able to lift up this bottle. There was a study where they dopamine depleted a rat or multiple rats, I don't remember. And a rat that's dopamine levels are driven down very low, will not travel two inches for food. This is how I like to teach the science of dopamine. So a hungry rat will not travel two inches to eat. It is drained of its core motivation to survive, to thrive, to even nourish itself. If you then move food to its mouth, it will eat. So dopamine is not only the molecule of motivation, like big picture thinking, passionate dreaming. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's what makes me feel like the future is worth living. It's what makes something exciting to experience. And if we understand how we can drain dopamine, and I I truly believe, Katie, that this will be the conversation of I don't know, of the moment at least, as we watch the evolution of the health and fitness world, is we're gonna, you're you're gonna see a lot more people talking about dopamine fasting. You're gonna see a lot more people realizing that our ability to control our own dopamine, I think it was Dr. Andrew Huberman who said it well. He said, your dopamine levels right now have everything to do with how you feel right now, how you're gonna feel in five minutes, how you're gonna feel later on today. And so if we could look at this, at this fundamental neuromodulator, that in previous times, how many exciting things happened in a day um, in 1900 compared to the data that we assimilate on TikTok in one minute? Okay, so sun comes up, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> you see your left one, oh, that's pretty cool. You go out to work, well, that's, that's rad. I watched a young person, and I'm sure other people have done this, in an elevator in New York recently, 
he just happened to be in the elevator with me and he's on a pretty big phone. And to watch the speed of data acquisition, watching him go from like to click to scroll to like to open a new window to like to click to close down the window. Like that level of data processing is unprecedented. I don't think he spent a millisecond deciding to like this or like that or close that. Now, when we see something exciting enough to like, and I would ask your audience, all of us are probably on Instagram, it's how you and I met. You don't like everything you see. Something's excited you. Something's gotten you, maybe it's a friend's work, you're proud of your friend, or something's actually caught your eye, but you're going, oh, I like that. Dopamine levels come up a little bit. We've got a little excitement. When they drop, they drop just below baseline. Dopamine levels come up, and they drop just below baseline because we're wired to have an exciting experience and then recover. On the macro, that could be, you can use your imagination to think of exciting physiological experiences that you might have to recover from, right? But online, little dopamine, little less. Oh, there's a motivational video, I like that. Little dopamine, a little less. Oh, there's my friend doing a cool project, I wanna watch their Instagram live. Little dopamine, little less. Now the algorithm is feeding us things that are likely to be what? Exciting to us. I always tell everybody when we think about the future of technology, if you're on Instagram and go to that little shopping cart on the bottom of your phone on Instagram, that's who Instagram thinks you are. There is a cultivated shop with your favorite colors and things you're gonna like. So you're being fed all day long. The most exciting thing that the algorithm of the internet can figure out that you might like. Dopamine levels come up, dopamine levels drop a little bit. Let's run that along a day. I think the average time, and I, don't quote me on this, but I feel like the average time spent on a phone right now is about seven and a half hours for adults and kids. I could be wrong by an hour in either direction. But let's take that dopamine draining process. And then let's say, okay, here I am, I'm scrolled out, six o'clock at night, my God, I'm still scrolling. But the world doesn't seem as bright as it did this morning. Maybe I'm even feeling a little cynical about the stuff that I'm seeing. Maybe I'm just feeling like exhausted. But what you're looking at is a neurophysiological depletion of a critical neurotransmitter that regulates mood, motivation, and emotion. Well, that's not a psychiatric illness. That's brain science. That's neuroscience. That's neurophysiological depletion versus a psychiatric disorder because these kids are on the phone seven and a half hours a day. Ask them how they feel. If they feel exhausted and depressed, well, maybe you've been exhausted and depressing yourself for seven and a half hours a day. What can we do about it? Well, we can, we can use the term dopamine fasting, or we can simply say, hey, look, I'm going to have to take a stimulation break here. I need to think of dopamine as a pool that when it drains, it refills. You put that phone away. You go out for a walk barefoot in the grass, looking at the periphery of the sky. It's like, I'm just replenishing a critical neurophysiological pool here. And then you notice how you start to feel. Am I a little more present? Do I feel a little less ready to jump out of my skin? Am I more engaged now by what I say? Now your loved one comes home, has exciting news. You're not like, whatever. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's so awesome to see and hear you. So I think the thing that is the variance of the 21st century is you've put constant entertainment in our hands that excites us and informs us and educates us and connects us. It also fundamentally impacts brain chemistry to the point that if we overuse it, we can barely move. So how do we teach that skill set to kids? How do we not demonize it? We say, look, this is one, I always tell kids, I'm like, look, technology is a double-edged sword and you're in a battle and it could be a battle for good things. It's a battle to reach your goals. It's a battle to thrive. It's a battle to bring ideas to life. 
you have good battles, doesn't mean you want to throw the sport away. <laughs> you want to learn how to use it because it's sharp on both sides. That's amazing. So if, okay, obviously we can tell kids, get off your phone. We can tell adults, adults probably need this more than kids, to be honest. If you give a kid something else to do, they'll go do it. We're, we do it for a feedback yeah. loop. Mm-hmm. We're terrible, um, myself included. But I guess, let's say, I, I always think back to this, to this example. I talked about it in the first podcast I did opening up this podcast. Um, which was this day that I was in this really depressive mode. My dad finally got me to go on a run. He had been in my room for like three weeks straight, asking me to go on a run. And I had this like epiphany that day of, you know, we're running back into the neighborhood and it literally, and I said it, it was like an SSRI commercial where like everything's doom and gloom and all of a sudden the whole world opens up and it's like sun and the birds are chirping and you're noticing all the wonderful things. So if they're living in this drainage state, or just bad mm-hmm. to describe it, but that's kind of how I'm thinking of it. They're just drained. I, I, think, of it as, I think of it as a drained battery. Yeah. I don't my phone when the battery dies, when I, if I haven't plugged it in in two days. You've drained the battery. we got to get it back into the green here. So let's say they're stimulated, stimulated, stimulated. What, it, what would be the the one of the single most impactful things that you could do in that moment to get them to have that aha moment like I did that day where the birds were chirping, but it was hard. It was hard work, right? I had to like run and like, is there anything like instantaneous just so you can grab their attention enough to say, don't you feel better? Yes, yes. Well, you know what, what, I, what I would say to that is the, because the coolest thing here is that once they start to move, once they start to train, they start to crave it, and we start to crave it. That's the chemistry of character, so to speak, right? We love to assign everybody a character. That's a character flaw, very unmotivated. You have such high character, you're always going. It's like, this is, it's not character, it's chemistry. So you've wired yourself to love certain behaviors. The people that I know, I used to run 100 mile races, and the people that I knew that were doing 20 mile training runs just could not. It wasn't that they were breaking through some major inertia. They were so wired to run 20 miles a day that they couldn't not. They would jump out of their skin if they didn't. So they were no longer doing the hard thing. The hard thing would have been to not run today and go sit and like breathe. So we, we build this association, this reward association to behaviors. And I think if we want to build a healthy one instead of a, a compulsive or addictive one, where I always start with young people is no one is asking them. And I shouldn't say no one. That's way too broad a term. They're seldomly asked, what gets your heart on fire? What gets your heart on fire? What are you dreaming about? Just we stopped culturally asking. So we'll say, you know, you've sure been on your phone a lot. You want to go to the gym? They're like, no. What gets your heart on fire? Now you've got the dopaminergic uh, ball rolling, so to speak. Because when you think right now, and I think right now about what gets our heart on fire, we get some dopamine from that. Oh, I, I know what gets me on fire. Okay, well, what are we going to do to get there? Oh, I got to do a couple things to get there. What's the first thing we can start to do? What if we start to move? What if we start to build brain and body foundation to get there in a focused, strategic, successful way that's related to what you're excited about versus you should? I feel like when we annihilate you should and we say you could, you open up the doors of human potential for kids. That's amazing. 
so essentially what we're doing is you're, you're building a why for them. You're helping them understand what their why is. And just saying their why is driving dopamine and it, that urge to want to be better. Yeah. That's so it, it's, it's driving the dopamine urge, but it's also then you, then you're giving them a how, okay, why I want to be picture, big picture, hundred X goal. Then where, where is the dopamine fall after that? You go, that's real far away away. <laughs> you have this huge why. You're excited. Oh, that's a long way from where I am. Okay, but hey, what can we do to right now? We can do a lot right now. What if I have some simple breathing exercises? We learn how we can manage alertness, calm, state. Oh, we can do that right now with no equipment. Let's do that. Okay, cool. What if we build some principles? I always teach in principles. I say, if you have these principles, you have a fitness plan for life. What are training principles? And then I teach them, I mean, this is all stuff that I'm sure the audience is using as well, but I teach them that we're going to pick patterns to train, not exercises. We're going to pick patterns and planes of motion. And a lot of that comes from um, a shout out to um, Dr. Pat Davidson's whole sort of rethinking the big patterns hierarchy of training in patterns and planes and stances. Because now when the coach says to them in college, all right, back squats. Well, maybe they challenge that, maybe they don't, but they understand that's not the only tool for the job here. We're trying to create a specific adaptation. And I always um, show the students, I'm like that first level adaptation is this. The first level adaptation is taking control of your own neurochemistry and your mind. That if you want very jacked quads, go get it. <laughs> whatever, like it's whatever, right? You want some aesthetic goal, go get it. But when you do these squats, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're making every cell in your body strong. A way that I like to share when I talk about unlocking potential with young people, I say, you know, we have over 37 trillion cells in our body. Imagine a piano with 37 trillion keys. You don't even have a lifetime to play every combination. We don't even have a lifetime to explore and unlock our own potential. That, that's the thrill of life. You start to play uh, notes together, you form chords, you can make music, right? Well, behaviors, environments, new things, trying, learning, experiencing, that's just you hitting these keys in different combinations. And you're gonna find the combination where you wake up and you go, ah, I feel good, I feel really good. Well, then you're just learning how to unlock your potential, not in a jargon-y way, but like you're a, you're a cellular powerhouse and you can learn how to optimize the way that your brain and body performs for the purpose, not of optimization alone, but of goal attainment to things that matter to you. I love that. That's amazing. So I have a question. Well, actually, I want to talk a little bit about your um, certification program first, but then I want to ask you something a little more personal. Can you tell me, because uh, you have some, is the certification something that you run online or is it all in person? I do it online. We do it online because we have people participating globally. So it is all online. Okay. And so that would be the certification is more for people who want to be able to administer this information to others. Is that correct? Tell them, tell uh, me. Absolutely. Well, we want, we wanted to, we wanted to share what we've learned through trial and error over the course of six years of refining this program. How do we communicate simple physiological principles in a way that matters? How do we start to do physiological assessments? that go from zero equipment, just baseline assessments, 
to things that actually leverage very sophisticated equipment and technologies. Because at the end of the day, as we start to look at lifestyle and technology impacting physiology, we're going to want a lens into how much that's impacting us. Mm-hmm. And the more that we can learn how to use the technologies at the bleeding edge of technology and not let them use us, not be reliant on them, but be in relationship with tools and skills and community, now we can, now we can get into some pretty sophisticated areas. I'll give you an example. Uh, Dr. Christopher Palmer, who I had the pleasure of meeting with and talking with a few weeks ago, wrote one of the most important books in my mind, um, one of the most important books of the 21st century, and it's called Brain Energy. And it is all about what we've previously called disorders and brain metabolism. And when we start to understand how our brain uses fuel, now we start to understand the value of doing a VO2 max test, which we do for free for all students. VO2 max testing and metabolic assessments are free for all students. They learn how their body uses fat versus carbohydrates. They learn about their metabolic rate and not to win states for the football team or something, even though they might but because that's critical information for navigating an age where lifestyle is going to be broadly changing. And we may start to normalize illness more than we normalize health. Right now, I think health is the counterculture. So you teach this stuff early as a big set of tools and skills. And for anybody thinking about the certification program, maybe you have no equipment, you don't need any equipment to teach kids about their body. But on a higher level, as we move into a future where one in four kids in our neighborhood is diagnosed with psychiatric disorder, one in four. And no one has done a single physiological assessment at all. And that's incredible, incredible to me. In the first version of the DSM-5, and this may interest the audience, this is the 1952 version of the DSM-5, which is the statistical manual that we're using to diagnose kids with a health care condition, health condition, with no health assessment. In the very first version of this, it was, um, I wrote the gentleman's name down, a Swiss-born psychologist named um, Adolf Myers. Used the word reactions in the manual, not disorders. It's almost like we're just trying to get back to there. So he used the word reactions. These are reactions to psychological, social, and biological factors. I've had too much caffeine, I'm over-caffeinated. I haven't slept in days, I am exhausted. I've been completely sedentary, I'm neurophysiologically depleted from TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube. In the next version in 1971, 75, all of a sudden natural reactions are disorders by the hundreds. So we're working through the certification to say, no, gang, it's 2023. Let's get back to understanding what is a natural physiological response to lifestyle, behavior, and environment. Let's assess that to save these kids from the weight, the cloak, the identity of a disorder that they very well may not have. So with a no physiological assessment, how would you know if this anxious kid wasn't just overstimulated, or if this exhausted kid actually needs to sleep, or if this malnourished kid actually needs nutrients? or if this kid who's been sitting under fluorescent lights playing video games for eight hours actually needs sunlight and movement and community. So we train people to do everything from lower level physiological assessments to very high level technological physiological assessments, but we teach them how to build the community around it. Because what you're not gonna measure in any research study is 
the benefit of these tools without the camaraderie and the support and the connection to each other. I honestly think, Katie, that one of the most important parts of this program is the kids are all hanging out and they're high-fiving and they're lighting up the sauna together. So we teach people how to build sort of a micro community in your neighborhood. And I can't say this enough, if that's three kids, for one, you'll improve your own health because you'll say, I'm doing a breathing class every Thursday for 20 minutes. Well, now there you go. You can't be too busy to do it, right? We hold ourselves accountable. You actually have to be there. So it's a win no matter what, but then somebody comes and they go, I wanna bring my sister to this. My sister could use this, she's anxious. Now two people come. Now give that a year, plant those seeds. Now you have groups working out together, parents and kids. So it's not just physiology, it's not just technology, it's skills, tools, and community that we're training people to build into an integrated system through the certification. I love that. And I feel like it makes sense because whether you're a professional or not, you can you can learn this stuff. Like this is not necessarily for professionals, right? This is for anybody. I'm so I'm so incredibly glad, Katie, that you said that because one of the things that I feel is is important right now in this what's being called a youth mental health crisis. And to contextualize that, suicide is the second leading cause of death among kids. So we have to do something. We have to be aggressive, but not angry. We have to be ferocious, but not, you know, vitriolic and, and, and not, you know, um, not, no fingers pointed, fingers lifted. But we have to solve for this problem. And the more that we can do that, and the more that we can avoid these kids being pathologized for being in a state that should physiologically cause anxiety or depression or inability to focus, I think we can actually build a movement together, a very decentralized movement that meets these kids where they're at with the tools that they need. And when you do that, magic happens. We don't ask the kids to put their phones away here. You know, somebody asked me that. They said, do you have a bucket for phones? And I said, no, we have a, a teaching program to make sure that you're more interesting than a phone. <laughs> like, you better be, you better tell them the house is haunted and we got to get this damn seance going on. If the kids are still holding the phone, that's our fault. So we get them to put their phones down and they don't pick them up again. They'll be here for two hours without touching a phone because their hands are on a barbell or a pull-up bar or they're doing a breathing exercise together or they're learning something. So I think the most disruptive fun element of this is we have to keep it um, more engaging than the opposition, which might be constant algorithmic dopamine draining on TikTok. I'd rather see high-fiving and pull-ups and push-ups and mutual community support and life skills building. And I know that we can continue to do that every day here we do it and it works. And that's a very scalable thing. We do it with very little infrastructure. This place is not an Equinox. This used to be an old screen printing shop. I mean, gutted building. And we brought kids in and we said, hey, do you think we could do something cool with this place if we took it, rented it? Oh yeah, what do you think we could do? Oh, we should put that here. We should put art back there. Okay, cool. I'll actually, I would love to share a very brief anecdote and shout out Yoga Bo Beanbags as an example of how we now evolve the curriculum into 21st century skills, 21st century skill building. So I, I asked the students, I said, what do you think would be cool if we built our campus out here? Because we rented this side of the building. And they were like, oh, Yoga Bo Beanbags would be so rad. They're big, fluffy beanbags, they're great. And I said, that's a great idea. I was like, what if we jump on Instagram 
And what if we craft a really thoughtful note to Yogabo? We tell them our mission as a nonprofit. We tell them what we think would be really cool. And we see maybe they have some that are discarded, that are damaged, whatever it might be. The kids did such a good job writing a very thoughtful note asking for exactly what they needed. Yogabo wrote back in 45 minutes and said, hey, gang, pick your colors. We'll put them on a FedEx truck tomorrow. So all the kids procured our furniture, our Yogabo beanbags, with their intellect and their curiosity and their clarity. Yeah. So that ties back to what we started with is we take these physiological skills, but at the end of the day, we also need to teach these kids how to interact with a world of technologies that could be a very negative thing or a way to connect with people like you. You and I, again, met via Instagram. It's variance on every side. Yeah, that's such an important skill too, to be able to seek out relationships and create relationships with others. Like, you know, my whole business is built on um, relationships really from, from 20 years ago when I started, you know, running my own business, there's just relationships with people. Like you take care of your clients, you ask them for referrals, you talk about your life, they talk about their life. It's like a shared camaraderie. And just because you're online doesn't mean you can't do that. And in fact, perfect opportunity to make that happen with more people who you may have so much in common with that you never knew, you know, that you would never get to meet. I mean, God, I think about all the people now I know because of my course all over the world. Yeah. And I swear I have more in common it's with so them. Easy. A lot of the people live down the street, you know? <laughs> so it's exactly that. It's exactly that. I mean, I, I ask people that the same thing. I say, how much do you have in common with your neighbors. Where is your community? I think right now we're seeing more redistricting around community globally. And that's very, we, a rabbit hole we can dive down, but I've seen a lot more people redistricting, moving to different areas where there is a health and fitness community, where there are supportive um, adults with similar interests. Because we're realizing that to a large degree, how many, I'll let me give an example to college idea. I was in the Ukraine right before the war. I was in October, I was in Kyiv working uh, to organize students around, putting a physiology first hub there and oh, to work wow. in schools. And I was speaking to a group of young veterans in Kyiv. And I said, look, we're here at a peace conference, a global peace conference. Can we have peace without mental health? And they're like, no. Okay, well then why are, when are we gonna create a revolution in mental health education, physical education, brain health education, because if we understood why we tend to see the differences in each other versus the similarities exclusively from a neuroscience perspective, maybe we start to understand the roots of violence, of opposition, of ideology a little more. And maybe we can actually make some gains in this valiant fight for peace in a nation that's now currently just being, just has gone through so much destruction. And I remember giving, giving this talk in Kyiv and um, the, I'm trying to think of what got me on that train of thought. Can you help me out, Katie? We're talking about the Ukraine because. Um, I think that you were gonna tell me a story about enacting the physiology first, like center there to, um, I don't know. I don't know what brought that up. I'm very curious about it, though. Like, <laughs> well, you know, the way that neurology works is it'll pop back in my mind at some point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, yeah, train of thought has derailed on that one. But one thing that I can say to uh, cover that in a little bit is 
you know, physiology, as I said to the students there, I said, physiology is what unites us in a world divided. Oh, and I remember where I was about the connection so, yes. with people. That was, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly where I was before. So um, I said to them, you know, physiology is what connects us in a world divided. Here, we're going to do some breathing exercises here in this hotel in Kiev, the same ones I do here at my center, the same ones that I do anywhere that I present. But the fundamental difference, and this is the train of thought that I lost that has gotten back on the track, is I would ask kids, I'd say, you know, it's like, what are you doing out here? Like, what, what's life like? Like, what's up? Like, what's cool? And they were like, we're building the future of Ukraine. Like, that's what was cool, is they actually saw themselves as part of a nation with a national story, with a future, with a purpose. And I don't say this with any level of fault, but I haven't met a young person recently saying, I'm building the future of America. Mm -hmm. So that's a core component of our mental health, their psychological well-being, is that we feel connected together to building a future that we can disagree on. That's why you have different groups and different political parties having different conversations about what the future should look like. But every one of those young, young people are building, building Ukraine. Maybe I'm heading into government, maybe I'm heading into some other area of the workforce, but I'm part of a nation, that nation's part of a globe. We're a people with a story. And I, the fear I think in America right now is that you can, you can teach physiology all day, but you don't wanna give kids nothing but tools to hack a life where they feel disconnected, disempowered, alienated, isolated, and part of no future at all. Mm -hmm. So I think we really have to teach physiology first and then remind kids, if you don't like the world that you see right now, well, guess what? You're not, a, you're not in the audience. You're not in the spectator stage here. You're actually on stage, whether you know it or not. You're building the future. What kind of future do you want to build? Now we have pulled the training into a purpose. And I think that to the point of communities feeling disconnected, nothing worse than isolation really, really, really is one of the hardest struggles for animals like us. So we have to give young people and adults something to believe in, something to move towards, and then the skills and tools to move towards that something, hopefully an optimistic future, successfully and together. I love that. That's like perfect. This is a good ending to the podcast too, because the personal question that I wanted to ask you is, what is your why? And that could be why you are where you are today, or that could be why you're continuing to facilitate this narrative and, and open it up to the world. And, and so tell me something about your why that you wanna share with us. I, I think that I have a great mentor in my life um, by the name of Adam Robinson. And I always tell the, stu the students the story of how I met Adam because it's a, it's a fun and wild story. And he was kind enough to share his ideas and, and thoughts with me. But one of the things he always asks people, he likes to say, and I share this with students, if you don't jump out of bed every morning, on fire, passionate, alive, you probably have one of two things that you might be need to cultivate. Either you don't know your mission or you don't know your hammer. Your mission is what you seek to do in the world and your hammer is the unique gift that you have to do it. You don't have five hammers. He's like the true power players in the world, in any era, in any area, from music to art, He's like Maslow said, if you only have a hammer, every problem is a nail. He's like, but I'm going to flip that. True power is you just have a hammer, but your genius isn't looking for nails. And when you realize what your core skills are and what your mission is, when those two things are in alignment, 
then every day is a drive towards making that happen and making it fun and inviting others to be a part of it. So I look at my own life and I, I remember when I was 14, 15, 16, living on old English malt liquor. My dad passed away um, when I was fairly young, but I'll, I, have, I wanna share this because I think it colors some things in. When I was 12, I remember sitting in a car with my father at a cemetery because it's where we would go to talk. We didn't talk much, but we, we would water the flowers. Now go with me. I remember I was about 12 years old and I said to my dad, I said, I am, I want to talk to you because I was feeling anxious. I was feeling down. And I'll never forget this, Katie. He said to me, he looked at me very awkwardly and sort of sheepishly. He didn't have a great communicative toolbox. And he said, do you want a beer? Now, mind you, I'd been going to AA with him for 12 years. For 12 years, I'd go to AA meetings with my mom and dad because they didn't have a babysitter. It never occurred to me, Katie, for any moment that he was going to say that. I thought he was going to say, like, here is sage advice or something. But he's like, do you want a beer? And I thought, well, hell, uh, yeah. Maybe. And what I think, what I actually thought is I thought it was going to open the door to, like, some father and son conversation. <laughs> like, I thought it was like, okay, here we go. And this is like a rite of passage. Yeah. So we go to the liquor store. We come back to the cemetery. I've got a tall boy of Coors Light. I'm awkwardly drinking it. And we don't have a word between us. Oh, I, this is a pacifier. I get it. It's not a, it's not a doorway to a conversation. It's a shut up <laughs> and have this. And every day after that, he'd say to me, it was kind of our subtle thing. He'd say, do you need anything from the store? By the time I was 14, I would say a pint of Cardi and two packs of Newport 100s. So I was drinking heavily at 13 and 14 years old. And I ran into a lot of physiological depression and depletion. I felt terrible. I was also living on Bacardi and Newport cigarettes at 14 or 15. My parents took me to some counselor and they started to ask me every question other than how are you living? How are you sleeping? What are you eating? I was living off of Elio's pizza and uh, again, malt liquor and rum. And that always stayed with me that even as a kid, I thought, are you going to ask any of the critical questions that seem to be right on the surface of this conversation, but we're, we're not looking at them. We're not taking them into account. Now, they tried to get me to go on medication at that age, but I ended up finding movement. Later, I ended up finding jujitsu. I found trail running. I found the path towards the same neuro neurophysiological outcomes. I asked kids recently, we have an Adderall crisis, an Adderall shortage. It's a production issue. I said to kids while they were here, I said, who here has heard about the Adderall shortage? A lot of them had. I said, who here knows what Adderall does neurophysiologically? What's the mechanism? They had no idea. I said, okay, we look at Adderall and dopamine along with other neurotransmitters, and we look at the similar outcome to an ice bath or a cold shower. And I put the data up on my big board. They were like, really? I said, yeah, it's not a magic bean, gang. <laughs> it's produced, it's a path up the summit. And you can take another path up the summit too, but it's the same summit. It's the same neurophysiological summit. I said, so we don't have a dopamine shortage. We have an Adderall shortage. We have a synthetic shortage. Let me show you how to access that skill set on purpose. I took them through that because I learned to do that. Running 100 mile races, grappling in jujitsu, learning brain science, learning physiology, learning to be a coach, working to be a better coach, and then working to ultimately be part, I would have hoped, is an evolution 
where healthcare and education and fitness merge into this 21st century skill set that adults and kids need. So I asked myself one day, because again, I was motivated by Adam to ask the question, what is my mission? And at first I thought, my mission is I want to change how we talk about mental health. It seems outdated, archaic, and the term mental health means absolutely nothing that anybody can define ever. So if we don't have a healthy mind that we can actually have a general agreed upon conversation about, we do have physiology that we could measure. And that mission has evolved. And I said, no, let me get clearer. I would challenge the audience to do as a fun exercise because I have teams do it. Write your mission on a fridge. You can't go wrong. I want to be a great uh, parent, whatever. Like it could be anything. Write it on the fridge and then as life evolves, refine it. You add a word, you take away a word. You gain a perspective, your focus changes, evolves. Mm-hmm. But I said, no, I think my mission is to change how we learn. Because that's the unique path to the summit that I took. It's, it's unique. It's a unique vantage point. Because I left school in eighth grade and had to figure this out. And I said, what if we just learned about ourselves before we learned about the rest of the world? Well, what is my skill set? Well, I can organize people. I can pull people together. I can create real life communities that run. I can create organizations that function. And I think I can communicate why that matters. So my why is saying that's my mission and that's my hammer, I think. I'm going to work to combine them to build towards a future where kids do feel the power of their brain and body. They do feel optimistic and hopeful. And they do feel like they're part of building the future together. That was amazing. <laughs> just to hear that so well thought out and it kind of brought this whole podcast full circle from the beginning when I asked you about the statement you made about why don't we learn to understand about us before we learn to understand everything about the world. And I just applaud you so much for, you know, having so much passion behind that and doing what you're doing. Cause I know it's not easy to, to break into some of these areas that feel very closed minded or closed off. So just amazing. What I would say to the audience is that the most fun part is if you're ever tired of trying to break into these areas, just build a cooler adjacent area. <laughs> just do your own. <laughs> it's like the school's up the road, but kids are here. Do you know what I mean? So if we can always be pioneers. Yeah. And we can always build new things. So if anybody out there has been trying to rally and you want to see better programs in your schools and you want to see kids be out for recess and you want to see the school invest in their mental and physical health, we can shake our fist at that forever. Or we can say, hey, we're just doing this over here. Come here. Kids are like, oh, this is cool over here. And parents are like, well, that's much cooler over there. We need to build alternative models that work. And when you do that, you feel it work. And then it snowballs. People actually want to contribute to it, meaning they want to help out. One of the number one texts I get from teens how can I help out? We don't charge teens anything. They're not, they're not dollars to us. And it may be the first time in their life that they've heard that they're worth something, that they're not currency. They are a currency. They're energy currency. Having them here is helpful on every level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take anything for me. A bunch of awesome teens hanging around. So the, the thing I might sort of leave with is if you're a movement practitioner, you have a space, consider the value of just opening it up to kids. Magic will happen. You'll be filled with passionate, awesome kids. Like the place will be alive with that energy. They'll have amazing ideas. They'll feel valued as humans. And you will be fundamentally shaping the future of health and fitness. It's time to just open up the doors. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Well, where can people find out more about your course? Or I, I know you have a lot of different resources on your website too. Can you tell them where they can find you? Absolutely. I'll put all of the stuff that we talked about today in the show notes. And I'd love that research paper too, to link to that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really, it's a cool one. Uh, you can find us at Physiology First on Instagram. You can find us at physiologyfirst.org. And we have a new free learning initiative on there where we do a lot of live learning. So I do a little micro video a day. I try to keep it under two minutes. It's called the Daily Brain Freeze. And maybe you find, it's maybe it's something you already know, but you find a strategy for communicating it in two minutes to, to youth. And then we have a breathing class that's live once a week. And we have a training class, our performance lab live, where we put these pro uh, these protocols into practice. So you can find all of that at Physiology First Org. And I'm very active at Physiology First on, on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. This has been absolutely wonderful. I really, really appreciate you having, on, having you on. So I, I so appreciate it. I'm so grateful. And again, I have to thank you for the all that you've taught me about my physiology. So it's really an honor to be here and to have had this conversation. Thank you.